I know you're all here to hear our speaker, Jeff Squire, and he says he's going to introduce himself. I asked him if he'd be sure to brag about cool stuff that he's done so that we don't you know, miss out on hearing that. He is the head of the Department of Physics at Colorado School of Mines, and I know he has four kids, but I think he's going to tell us the rest of the vital information. Oh, three. I just, oh, okay. One dog. <laughs> anyway, here is Jeff Squire to tell us about laser pulses, focusing light in time and space. Welcome. All right. Thank you very much. And I... I really, really appreciate the uh, invitation. I think this is just a great format uh, for, for reaching out to the community. So I was excited to hear about it. And uh, you can bet that I'll be here uh, from here on out uh, with the, the next speaker. So I want to just do a really brief biography. So I actually grew up in Arvada. I, went, I got my undergraduate degree at School of Mines uh, in engineering physics. While I was there at, uh, at School of Mines, I think it was the end of my... Sophomore year, I got a summer job at Coors. That paid so much, I didn't have to work for the next two years. So it was a tremendous uh, job. So I've been associated with Coors. My sister worked at Coors. My brother-in-law worked at Coors. My uncles worked at Coors. So uh, a lot of association. So I got my undergraduate master's degree uh, at Mines. I went and got my PhD in optics at University of Rochester. I spent some time at University of Michigan. So I'm a big Michigan fan. Uh, go blue, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's probably some Ohio State people here. Uh, you know what that means. Uh, and then I went to UC San Diego, uh, and then from University of California, San Diego, I was fortunate enough to make a timely call to School of Mines one day about 12 years ago and said, oh, we'd like to move back. This is where family is. Are there any positions open? And they just happened to have a physics slot open. It was just a pure luck. And so we moved back. And so I've been with the physics department at, uh, for 12 years, going into my 13th year, and I'm a rookie. So as of July 1st, I took over as department head of physics, uh, which is really exciting. And we are happy to announce that uh, after 51 years, we have the oldest non-renovated building on campus. And uh, <laughs> Governor Hickenlooper signed off about a month ago, so we're getting a new physics building. Uh, so we're very happy. Yeah. yeah. So that's exciting. So. I invite you all to come see us in about uh, 36 months when we're going to have the new cornerstone building uh, for physics. And it's also what's changed at Minds is we do a lot of biology now. So I know we got a lot of alumni out. That's a big part of what we do is, is biology. And you're going to see that tonight. And I'm going to warn you if you're eating, I'm going to show you eye surgeries as we go along here. But it's, it's, not, it's not too gross. So, uh, yeah, so given that, uh, I, I want to try to challenge your minds tonight and... So you're probably where I brought one little problem. I'm going to try to watch the clock very carefully so I don't, I don't ramble on too much. Uh, and boy, just to show you how much of a geek I am, I have on my iPhone uh, as many pictures of optics and lasers on my phone as my kids. So there's an actual femtosecond pulse is the background on my iPhone. Uh, and, but we'll get into that. So this is my one prop a lens. And I think everyone is probably pretty... Uh, comfortable with the idea that if I take a laser beam and I fill this lens up with that laser beam, it focuses that, that, that beam to a point. And then we could probably even play around with the projector. That, that's what a lens does, right? And you can imagine if this was putting out a laser beam, it's going to focus that laser beam in space to a point. And that's where we cut with the laser beam. But what we 
we did at School of Minds is a little bit different. We made a four-dimensional lens. Okay, so this laser is kind of special. It's not, it's not on all the time. This is a laser that's going to produce a burst of light, a very short pulse of light. And now we get an extra degree of freedom. Now I can use the lens, if I build it right, not only to focus it spatially, but I want to focus it in time as well. So it's a four-dimensional lens. Okay, so that's, that's what we've got to try to get you used to. And not surprisingly, as soon as we created this four-dimensional lens and started focusing it into things, that's kind of the geeky fun you do once you get a new laser. You just start focusing it and see what happens. We saw new stuff. Uh, and that's, that's why you get up in the morning as a physicist. And I'll show you uh, some pictures of that in just a moment. So I just want to, this slide motivates why we are so interested in doing it. Now we're using, like I said, these are lasers that produce a burst of light. They're really short bursts, okay? So the longest time scale that I'm going to be talking about is 100 femtoseconds. So I got to try to get you scaled for that. So if you know exponents, that's 10 to the minus 15 seconds. What the heck does that mean? Uh, but to, to scale it, you're probably familiar with a nanosecond. A nanosecond is one billionth of a second. And in one billionth of a second, light, which is pretty fast, can't get very far. It travels about a foot. Now, for me, a billionth of a second is an eternity. That's really slow for us femtosecond physicists. We take that billionth of a second and we chop it up into a million pieces. So a millionth of a billionth of a second is a femtosecond. So it's pretty short. And uh, actually, these, this really leads, these are the fastest events that mankind can create. And so they have all kinds of uh, applications. Uh, so we, they're the ultimate strobe camera, if you will. Uh, we can really stop motion, and we can cut things with them. Okay, so if we, uh, and this is one of the ramifications I want to show you. Femtoseconds, okay, so the, the other thing I want to try to get you familiar with, we'll throw a little bit of algebra. After a beer, you've got to understand algebra. Uh, so power is energy divided by time, okay? If I make time infinitesimally short by making it a femtosecond, power goes through the roof. So we, what does that mean? That means when I focus a femtosecond pulse, because the duration is so small, even if it's only got a modest amount of energy in it, the power goes through the roof. The intensities that we generate or focus are mind-boggling. They are at 100 billion watts per square centimeter, 1,000 trillion watts per square centimeter. We can cut through anything. I dare you. Just bring something and we'll cut through it. Uh, we cut through diamonds. We can create the highest pressures known to mankind with these lasers. And we do it with really modest amounts of energy. So if you have a 60-watt light bulb, so in one second it puts out 60 joules, we are using a microjoule. So we aren't even close to the energy that's coming out of your light bulb in one second. We're using microjoules, a millionth of a joule, but we're putting all that energy into a hundred femtosecond pulse. Okay, so that's really short. So now, again, so a nanosecond, a billionth of a second, light travels about a foot. The longest pulse that I use is a hundred femtoseconds. In a hundred femtoseconds, light can travel about 30 microns. Uh, what the heck is 30 microns? About the width of a human hair, that the tip of a hair is about 30 microns. So it, it just can't get very far. These are really fast events. And because they're so short, if we just pack a little bit of energy into them, they become extremely powerful. 
when we focus them, they create very high intensities, and we can just do amazing things. We can manipulate material. Uh, we can make we make microscopes out of them. If you're interested in that, I can actually show you a little bit later. We do we do 3D imaging with laser microscopes. But now, one of the things that you're uh, some of you in this room have probably had laser eye surgery, and that's one of the things that I like to work on. Uh, and they are using. What I call now, amazingly, I can't believe I can say this. It sounds like almost like an oxymoron. They're using a traditional femtosecond laser, and and it has problems. It's it's improved eye surgery tremendously, but this slide shows some of the challenges. So I got a piece of glass, a chunk of glass, about six millimeters thick, and I'm gonna I want to cut inside of it with a femtosecond laser beam. The, the problem is this laser beam is so intense it actually collapses on itself and it tracks the entire volume. Okay, so that's what this picture shows. Here's your traditional femtosecond laser beam and this is a chunk of glass that's meant to simulate the lens in your eye. If I take a traditional femtosecond laser beam and I want to cut back here and I'm focusing from the top, the laser beam collapses on itself because it's so intense, it creates this line and tracks everything, it's out of control. Okay, so, so if you're a laser surgeon, or more importantly, if you're the patient, that's bad. Uh, that's not good. So uh, what's amazing now, if I make a lens that can focus, the, if I can take advantage of that, that other dimension, time, for the first time, uh, I can actually control that. So now I'm going to take my, uh, this lens, and I'm going to focus it in space with the lens, but I'm also going to focus it in time with a little trick. And look what happened. So now I can focus this laser beam safely all the way through the material, and I can just target this back side right here. So we are actually working with surgeons because now we can target uh, membranes with uh, just unprecedented precision. And so this, I'm, I'm pretty convinced, will be the next generation of laser eye surgery. How it will be done with this four-dimensional lens, but that's that's the motivation. We're trying. We can create these tremendous powers that, when focused with a lens, create unbelievable intensities that we can cut through anything. But it's hard to control. Once we create a four-dimensional lens, now we can control can control it, and we're going to do it. We're going to do it for uh, eye surgeries, the first one. But there's other surgeries that we're targeting. Uh, there's some uh, really neat ways that we could actually do almost like Star Trek manipulations where uh, slightly below the skin we could actually make cuts without breaking the top of your skin. So that's on, on the horizon for us. We've, we've done it with pig skin, which is fun to you. <laughs> so how the heck do we do it? Well, the one thing that I have to get you to think about differently is that normally when you think of a laser beam, uh, if, if you're normally thinking about laser beams, <laughs> uh, is that that is really pure light. It's one color, right? I think that's usually the, the picture you're given, is that, oh, a laser beam is just exquisite. It's just one color. So it's one kind of ocean wave, one wavelength of light. And that's what we call monochromatic light. Okay, when we create a femtosecond laser, we're, it's a game changer. Femtosecond lasers are not a single wavelength. They are not monochromatic. They emit many wavelengths of light simultaneously. And it's those many different wavelengths that add, add together to give us a short burst of light. 
And that's the big difference. So a normal laser is one color. A femtosecond laser is composed of many colors. And those different colors combine to make a very short pulse. And because I know that now, I can manipulate this rainbow of light to create my four-dimensional lens. And I, can, I bet a lot of people in here are musicians. So I can probably convince you, if you've ever tuned a guitar or tuned an instrument, you're actually on your way to building a femtosecond laser. You didn't even know it. Uh, so, but the basic idea is like when I pluck the guitar string uh, and I hear a tone, and then I've got some, some other reference tone. So I've got maybe a digital, uh, nowadays you produce it digitally. You'd produce another tone or use a, another uh, string on the, on the guitar higher up to reference it to. So you produce two tones. And the musician, when he's tuning it, he's trying to match the tones to get them to be exactly the same. But when you start out, those two frequencies, those two tones are slightly different. And do this next time, you're, and you can hear a beat. You can hear the, 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 that tone getting stronger, and then uh, it, it grows, and then it diminishes, grows and diminishes. And what the musician does is he tunes his guitar so he eliminates that, that beat note. So it all sounds just a pure tone. We go the opposite. We say, oh, wait, here you've got a tone that's coming in and out. Oh, that's the start of a pulse. If I add more frequencies, I can make that beat, that tone that's coming in and out, sharper and sharper. So acoustically, if you're a musician, you've already been making short pulses uh, with your detuned instrumentation. <laughs> so, and that's what we do. So hopefully you, you get the basic idea. A traditional laser that's on all the time, one wavelength. When I use a short pulse laser, what's unique is we've got a rainbow of colors. And all those colors are adding up to give us a very short pulse. And so that's how we make a four-dimensional lens, okay? And that's what's in this picture. So I come in with a short burst of light. It's right here. It's one pulse. Ignore this. This is for physics talks. It's one pulse. And we hit a diffraction grating or a prism. Everyone's seen that, you know, how you light it goes through a prism and it breaks it up. So we literally just hit what we call a diffraction grating. It could be a prism. And it breaks the laser beam into all, all this and then I use a second grating or a second prism to stop the, sp the spread of the colors. So now I've got this rainbow laser beam, but I've set the colors are no longer spatially overlapping. They're not on top of one another. If the colors do not overlap spatially, they cannot combine temporally to add to give you a short pulse. So if I've got a camera, and we do, I can look right here and I can see a femtosecond pulse. That's, that's the picture on my phone. <laughs> you can show you that later. When I, when I take that camera and look at the rainbow, the colors are all spread apart, so it's a really long pulse. So I'm halfway there. Actually, what I like to think about is literally I've defocused the light in time. I've gone from a short pulse to a really long pulse. If I've gone to a really long pulse, when I focus it, it's not as intense. Because it's not short. Power is energy divided by time. If I make time really long, power is diminishing. The focus intensity is diminishing. So it turns out, it, uh, this is especially great because it was so simple to do in the lab. That, it just rarely happens, right? You come up with an idea and then it's just complicated. This was just plucking... Uh, elements that we had on the shelf and stick them in the laser beam 
and we could see instantly that the laser beam grew in time. And now it's easy. So now I've got it. I just take my lens and I stick it in that rainbow beam and I'm done. That combination of the gratings and the lens makes my four-dimensional lens. That system is going to focus light in space and in time. And I've blown up the focus after the lens in this lower panel right here. So here's my lens, okay? And now all the colors, they aren't overlapping until they're at the exact focus where the laser beam is the smallest. So there's my four-dimensional lens. Crazy, right? <laughs> I've got a small, tiny laser spot spatially. All the colors only overlap right here, so that's the only point where I can have a short instant in time. And we actually look with the camera. I can look at the camera here. I can look right here, and the pulse is really long. I can look right after the lens. It's really fun to take this camera and scroll it towards the focus, sweep the focus. We actually can see it. Uh, the pulse collapses in time. It gets focused. And then when we take that camera and we look over here, we can actually see the beam getting bigger spatially, and it comes out in time. It defocuses in time as well. And it turns out, as you saw, when you made this very simple lens, you've lowered the intensity everywhere except at this exact plane, and it just has amazing properties in allowing us to manipulate materials. And I'm going to show you some movies and stuff on that. So as we, as we go along here, uh, so I've been talking, uh, I guess, about 15 minutes. So I'm going to try to just give you some examples now and let you think about this. Because there there's lots of surprises as we went along now. Uh, but what's been nice is that, oh, wow, it's easy for us to do, actually. Uh, so it's... That rarity aligns. Uh, so this one, I'm going to kind of skip, but it just shows you again the impact. Look at these last two panels. And we've got a special die that allows us to see the laser beam. This is the, there's your normal femtosecond laser beam. And you can look at the interaction line and see how long it is. And this is the space-time focus. It's, it's much more combined. And it's, it's, it's really dramatic, especially for a surgeon. So right now, when, when they do laser eye surgery, the precision is about 1.2 millimeters. That's what that black curve means. With a space-time focus, it's 35 microns. And you can imagine, they want to be able to cut up to membranes like inside your eye closer and closer, uh, and they don't want to make mistakes. And this, this is really going to enable it to do it. The other thing that's really nice for safety is that when you defocus in time, you know, light, even though it's cutting inside your eye, is still going to hit your retina and your brain. <laughs> uh, the intensity is lowered, so it's going to be a safer mechanism as well. It's just going to be safer. This is, this is cool. So what we do to kind of prove that it works is we take the laser beam and we create a spark in the air. And we take pictures of that spark. And when I did it with a normal, a normal focus, you could see the spark gets elongated and distorts. And the other thing you'll notice that not only gets distorted, but it actually moves. It's supposed to stay on that white line. And it's shifting. So you can imagine if you've got, in the, you're in the middle of surgery, and there's a hiccup in the electricity, and the laser pulse intensity changes, it's going to shift on you on the focus. Uh, we don't want it to do that. <laughs> and now look on the next panel. You can see the sparks and air that we create with the, fem the, the new space-time lens. It does not distort. It stays right on the line. So this laser is going to be invariant. So if the laser 
fluctuates in power during a process, whether we're doing eye surgeries or we're making a cut inside of materials, it's much steadier. And the graduate students that actually work on this love it. They will not go back to the standard laser anymore. They just they say, oh, how, do you, how do you even focus it? And somehow I did and got my PhD, but they can't. Uh, so. Okay, so here's your first real-time surgery. So this is a normal femtosecond laser cutting an extracted porcine eye. So no, notice as we cut, we're creating a bubble. Surgeons don't like bubbles, it turns out, so they complicate their life. And here's another bubble that's coming out. Now we're purposely doing this surgery under extreme conditions to really try to illustrate how much the benefit of this laser. Surgeons would not use these tremendous intensities that I'm showing you here. Okay? But hopefully you caught that. If you didn't, I just took this to show all the bubbles uh, that you create. Okay, this is the standard surgery. So now I'm going to do that same surgery with our space-time focused light. And these are these are just porcelain eyes, so it's uh, pig eyes that we just stick in kind of a wax. And we cut. And let's see. And here it goes. And you just it's almost disappointing. It's completely featureless, which is good news. That's what we want to see. Uh, so the benefit of using this just became immediately obvious. We just we don't have any of the bubbling features. Now, to kind of even take a closer look, uh, what we did is we take uh, what's called, a, we do a histological analysis of these eyes that we just cut. So what we do is you take a, a really thin razor blade, and we're going to chop This one's a little hard to see, so but maybe during the break you can come look through it. What I want you to know is that those four panels are the standard focus, and you can see it just totally disrupted the tissue. So we're going down, it just cut all the way up to a millimeter deep. This is not what you want to see. So the laser just it collapsed, like in that very first slide I was showing you, it collapsed and it caused extended damage. What's nice is the, the space-time cutting completely clamped. And this layer here needs to be here. If you're having your lens replaced, you still need this layer. And here it's completely blown away. And with the space-time focusing, it, it stayed there, which is nice. And you can see the little bits coming through here. So it, it really clamped it. So we were really able to drastically, uh, I think, change the landscape. And, and people at Colorado, the health sciences, are very interested in this uh, as well. So now, that's kind of some of the practical aspects. But there are some surprises when we do this. I want to show you some surprises. And if you were wondering, we actually, if these are the fastest events that mankind can create, so we have to be a little bit careful, clever. If these are the fastest events, how do I make a camera that can see them? We actually can do it. And so in this center panel is actually a picture of a femtosecond pulse in time. But just to prove that it's, it's not obvious, but we can do it. Okay. So this is, this is why you get up in the morning to be a physicist. So in this movie, I'm taking a piece of glass one day just for fun, and I'm dragging it through the beam left to right. I take it down, then I'm going to drag it right to left. And I was stunned at what I saw. Can you see what's happening there? 
This is a piece of glass that when I take and look at it, it's the same in every direction. You know, it, there's nothing different about it. But when I take it and put it under the laser beam, when I drag it left to right, The material is modified entirely differently. And so I, we were really excited when we saw this because we had no clue what's going on. I mean, this is, this is exactly why you're a scientist. You say, wow, what the heck? You, yeah, this can't be right. Give me another piece of glass. Same thing. Uh, and we just start putting other things under the beam. No matter what, all of a sudden there was this break in the symmetry. Even though you know this glass, no matter how I rotate, it's the same. But if I drag it in one direction under my laser beam, it's going to modify the material in one way. And if I drag it in the other direction, it changes it completely. So this is an entirely new field now of material modification as a result of this space-time focusing. So what was cool is now we had a mystery on our hands. What the heck? Where is this asymmetry coming from? And so this is the, you take another sip of beer because you probably won't believe this. <clears throat> so why is this happening? What we, what we were able to deduce is that when I create this four-dimensional lens, we are actually tilting the light pulse in time. So it's tilted. <laughs> and the tilt is what gives us the asymmetry. And so let me try to, what the heck is a light pulse tilted in time? Uh, it's just, ah. <laughs> OK, so let's, let's, let's pretend this is actually a femtosecond pulse. Uh, again, so a 100 femtosecond pulse is about 30 microns thick. So if you had a beam that's about you know four inches across like this, if you could actually watch this light bulb property, it would look like a pancake flying through the air, right? So, uh, or it lens. Okay, it's really dense. Maybe it's a crate. <laughs> so that this would be the time aspect. Okay, so it's normally it's just like this, and it's focused to the lens. And let me see if I got a piece of paper. This one's not tilted in time. It's just going to come and hit the paper and boom, interact with the paper. What we discovered with the space-time lens is this crate is actually tilted like this. So when it hits the lens, the one part of the light gets first and it sweeps across it. And now it turns out we can actually control this tilt in time. So and that's another new degree of freedom that we ever had before was the tilt in time and at least material modifications that we never predicted. So when we take and we drag material of the lights coming in, there's a snowball effect. If we push against the tilt, we get this guy. If we, if we drag it away from the tilt, in time we get this guy. And what you're seeing, this actually will guide light. This is making like a fiber optic in the material. And this is actually making a gradient inside of it, which is awesome. So I'll show you some other pictures of it. That was inside of glass. What happens if I focus on the surface of glass? It gets even weirder. So when I went one direction, we created these chevron shapes, these bee-like structures. There are actually holes in the glass. And when I drag it the other direction, I got perfect pits. So I work with, well, you probably think that physicists are clever, but mechanical engineers are pretty clever, too. And I got some pretty clever friends in mechanical engineering. And they showed me, oh, you know, if you really want to take a look at that, I got a clever trick for you. And what they do is they showed me this. So after I did, did this, we pour PDMS. So this is like the caulking that you use in your bathroom to seal up all the leaks on top of our sample. 
and then I can peel it off, and I'm left with a relief of the, the, the holes I just dug. These are small, so then I can I code them, and then I can go look at them on an electron microscope. And so on the next slide, I'm going to show you what these structures really look like. Wow, isn't that wild? So they are really, I mean, it's just, and we do not understand why this happens. So this, we get alligator teeth in one direction and a zipper-like structure in the other direction. Okay. So I'm almost done here, so I don't want to take too much more time. Uh, but it turns out, even though we don't understand this, we've got real-world applications already, because I work with my friends in chemical and biological engineering. And they make little tiny devices... What we're working on is what we call the iPod of health. We want to create a little device that we manufacture using lasers that will allow you to take a droplet of your blood and stick it in there. And then lasers are used to analyze the blood. And it gets really crazy, right? Uh, uh, <clears throat> if you're sick, you can imagine we'll have a little, R, a little transmitter in there. It's going to email your doctor. You're going to get an email that says, stay home that day. Uh, <laughs> But they need to be able to mix chemicals and stuff inside these little tiny devices. And that's a really challenging problem. And it turns out if we were able to write zipper-like structures inside of these devices, that helps them create these mixers. So even though we don't understand the physics of what's going on here yet, we've got real-world applications. And so I think it's a great example. A lot of the questions that I get asked a lot, especially when parents come through and you, you describe what seems to be esoteric physics. Why do you even say this? What's the application? It's, this is a great example of why you do just basic physics. You do not work, know where it will lead you, and inevitably it leads to real-world applications. Oh, and this picture just shows the light tilted in time and how the, the structures just vary again. So this is the actual mixing device that we're working with the chemical and uh, um, biological engineering department on making. So where you can actually see we're actually making these little like zipper-like structures with this, with this technique. Okay, now I'm going to conclude with this slide because one of the things that we also like to do, what motivated this is uh, we work with the University of California, San Diego in trying to understand how your brain works. More specifically, how a mouse's brain works. And we're going to extrapolate that. Uh, okay, so, but one of the th challenges you have is if you're going to use a laser beam inside of a, uh, a mouse brain, we actually have to do a craniotomy. So, how they do it now is they take a dental drill. And then it's kind of cool because you, 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 you drill that off and they can actually attach a window and then we can look inside the mouse's brain. <clears throat> the problem is you can imagine a dental drill is kind of rough on the brain tissue. And this technique is allowing us to delicately cut the skull back and layer it all the way up to the brain. And then we can actually make a perfect window, a perfect, I don't know what, we, a frame that holds the window. And they can literally super glue these in and the mice will keep them there or the rats. Uh, and then, then we use, then like I said, part of what I do is I build special laser microscopes that allow us to see in 3D the blood flow. Uh, and then we do all kinds of tricks. Uh, we're trying to understand... Uh, what happens with an aneurysm? Uh, you've had a stroke, what happens? Uh, well, part of understanding this is, is you've got to be able to look in there when it happens. And we can actually use the laser to ignite these events. So we know when the stroke happens, and then we can look at it. So with that, I've already spoken more than I was supposed to. So I'm going to stop right there and, and let you and give it back to you. <laughs>
Okay, we are all smarter than we were when we walked in the door, right? <laughs> so we're going to take about a 10-minute break. If you want to grab dessert or if you have um, want to, I think there's, is there more beer still? And there's more beer. So in about 10 minutes, if it's okay, we're going to bring you back up to ask you some questions. So 10 minutes from now, we'll reconvene. To refocus our, our, yeah, ourselves. <laughs> I was trying to make the pun more elaborate. All right, we're going to go ahead and put our, ask our speakers some questions. Um, so, Jeff, I'll just hand the mic to you and pick whoever looks good. All right. All right, let's start over here. So, so the, 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 the question so everybody can hear it is how far off before this makes it into, uh, in, yeah, so it turns out, uh, so I actually have one of the original patents in Laser LASIK, and, that, uh, and that's my story of how naive I was as a graduate student. I made no money on it, but, uh, but it turns out as I got back into this game, uh, and I just started looking at this information recently about three years ago so all the big eye companies are just now done with their second generation of improvements on uh, LASIK surgeries so they've all seen this now and they said wow you're right I guarantee they, they know it's better they want to adopt it they have invested millions tens of million dollars on this second generation devices so our timing's a little bit bad. They, all these new devices are, are out there in market right now. So it looks like probably before this hits would probably be another 10 years or so uh, because they've just invested so much. They, and literally, I was amazed that uh, our original work is just being upgraded now. And we did this almost 20 years ago. And so the timing's a little bit off. They've the biggest companies have recognized that, oh, this is beneficial. They're very interested. They're watching it. We actually, the School of Mines has the patent on this. Uh, but it's going to be a while. So I was a little bit disappointed that myself that, oh, man, our timing was just off. The companies are interested. I'm, I'm convinced it will be there eventually, but uh, it's a little bit, it's going to be a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the the question is is you know how I guess you know fundamentally is how far can we penetrate basically, so that's you know why we chose the eye for our first application because the eye is optically transparent, so I know I can go deep, but. You know, I work in a regime where you can literally look at the material. If you can't see through it, we're not going to get very deep. So that, that limits us. But that's why, and on this application for the craniotomy, it's really nice. We start at the top. We literally vaporize a thin layer, and then we work our way down to the brain. But that's a challenge. But having said that, it turns out there, we're starting to learn some ways to manipulate tissue, for instance. It turns out if you just stress the skin and we push the water out a little bit we can actually get the laser deeper than what we thought and that's what could lead us to uh, enable us to make cuts 
below inside the tissue for certain very delicate surgeries without having to cut the top. Oh, no. Okay. So, but this is where we again we use almost no energy, so we don't have enough energy to, to use the analogy particularly appropriate for tonight to dent a beer can. But we have this tremendous power to cut through things, uh, so ours is always going to be very delicate, uh, precise cuts. But when you need you know brute force like drilling a well, we just we can't do it. No. We'll, we'll, no, we'll never, we'll never be able to do it. That's just an entirely different regime. That's a regime where you need energy. Here where we need peak power. We need po- all our applications are power-driven. There's almost no energy involved with them. And it's, it's a subtle distinction. But, uh, so to give you an idea, to try to scale this, is one of the lasers in my lab is a trillion watts peak power, a terawatt, one trillion watts. And, you know, roughly the entire power generation capacity of the United States is a trillion watts. So why the heck aren't all your homes blacking out when I turn it on? Because uh, it's peak... Oh, excuse me, I'm spitting up my dinner here. It's peak power. Uh, we only turn it on for 30 femtoseconds. So the average power is actually only 30 watts. So for an uh, in, you know exquisitely small time, we've got tremendous intensity and we can vaporize something, but... To, to cut bulk things like make a drill in terms of a, a well or something, you just you just couldn't do it. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Since you're using different wavelengths of light, they different amounts when you send it to the glass lens. So how important is the chromatic aberration? Oh, so this is a physics question. <laughs> so does everyone get that? So that's where did my prop go? Let me repeat the prop because it's it's absolutely. A great question and something we we really struggled with at first. So it turns out when I take a piece of glass, uh, the refractive index of glass, which is uh, is actually wavelength dependent. So so different colors actually do focus to different depths. So that's what we call chromatic aberration. And I've got this weird case where I've got a laser that's made up of many different colors. So it turns out if we don't pick our lens really carefully, the lens will actually not focus the light correctly and it just it totally distorts our focus. So in our first generation of experiments, we didn't want to deal with that, so we used a mirror. <laughs> so we focused the laser beam with a mirror and, th- and then all colors would focus at the same spot. They don't, it doesn't have chromatic aberration. Now, we're working with industry now because they can't work with mirrors real readily in their applications. So we're having to design lenses that are multi-element lenses that actually can correct for this problem. But it's it's a great observation. So, and this slide here kind of... Oops, there we go. This one at the very beginning. So if I use something as simple as the lens I brought, these colors will not come to this point because glass focuses different colors to different depths and we have to worry about that so we have to make a a little bit more sophisticated lens design to handle that but the first experiments i put this i put a mirror that could focus instead so because i didn't i knew that was going to be a problem i didn't want to deal with it (laughs) so go ahead 
so the question was, this technique looks like it works with bloodless surgery, and is someone using it for cattle mutilations? And I, I can't see how they get a femtosecond laser out to those fields. It's, uh, yeah, so, yeah, no, it's... It, oh, who knows? Yeah, who knows what's out there? I, I don't know, yeah, so... But I know I can safely speak in the United States that we were kind of the first ones and only ones doing this, so... Yeah, I'll go ahead. Yeah, so it's a, that's a great question too. So the the question is, if you didn't hear it, it, says we have to make custom design lenses. We have to design them ourselves. So at School of Mines, can we actually make them? And the answer is no. Uh, we can we can design them, and that's one of the courses that I teach is modern optical engineering. So we can teach them how to design lenses. But then we it turns out. Believe it or not, and a lot of you know this better than I do, there's over 200 optics companies on the front range here of Colorado. Over 200. So uh, we can go to, there's multiple companies up in Boulder, for instance, uh, that we work with to, to design the lenses and actually fabricate them finally. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, so this was a biography question. So on, on the website, I, I noted that I have my own fleet of drones. It's not politically incorrect, so it's uh, UAVs. So uh, I actually run the, the Blaster Hackers Club at School of Mines. And so, so I'm not teaching your kids how to break into your accounts. Hackers to the kids nowadays means something entirely different. It doesn't mean breaking into uh, bank accounts. It, it means taking something and using it for an entire diff- entirely different application. So we run a hackers club. So one of the things that we did, for instance, is we take old DVD players and we extract out the laser and the positioning system and the lens. And so we hack into that and we teach the kids how to control it. And then we can put them inside of microscopes and we can make tractor beams for cells inside of uh, these microscopes. So that's an example of a hack, and that's what we do, and that's called do-it-yourself electronics. And that's, so that's one of the things we do. So the other cool thing that we do, of course, is we got all caught up in the excitement of making uh, quadcopters and hexacopters. So I've built my own little fleet, and uh, <clears throat> it got out of control on me, though, so my kids know this. So I got a little bit uh, over-exuberant one day, so I was building my own UAVs. I'm testing them out in my backyard, and I had what they called a flyaway. So you can imagine what that is. So my drone thinks it got the GPS coordinates wrong. It thinks its battery's dead. It's really not. Uh, <clears throat> it thinks home is like a block down. So it flew to about 15 feet, turned 45 degrees, and took off unbelievably fast down the street. And, I, and it rejected all commands. <laughs> and it just exploded on my neighbor's house. <laughs> so he comes running out and says, oh, I thought my sump pump exploded. <laughs> so, oh, no, it's just your, 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 your physics neighbor. <laughs> so it's, and, but you'll be glad to know that because I built it myself, it cost about $14 to repair my, my, my aircraft. And about two hundred dollars to repair his house. <laughs> so, so that's the that's the UAV. But part of what I do now is uh, at, at work here. Uh, 
is these laser beams make amazing uh, optical light bulbs for microscopes. So literally, we build our own microscope, we pull out the light bulb, and we, re we replace it with a femtosecond laser. And man, all kinds of things happen when you do that. So we are actually able to see in 3D. So we'll go in. These laser beams are infrared. You cannot see them by eye. When we use these as light bulbs inside of a microscope, all of a sudden you see green light coming out and blue light coming out and other, other light. And we can register that and we can make 3D recordings of living cells. We're working with NREL. Uh, we stick solar cells in there to try to look at uh, the dynamics of how light is absorbed by solar cells. So that's the other parts of my CV. Yeah. Um, my question has to do with the time element. Yeah. And my background is in geology, so I'm used to. So you're ultra slow physics. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking in millions of years. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. 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 So how do you actually do things? Oh, yeah. Uh, this is a. Yeah, so this is. Yeah, how do we. This was the, the big problem when I was in, in graduate school. So the question is, how do you measure these light pulses, darn it? Yeah, because as scientists, if I create a laser and I said, okay, it's 30 femtosecond long, you, you can't just say that. You've got to prove to the world that it's 30 femtoseconds long. There is no oscilloscope. There are no electronics fast enough to actually measure it. So how the heck do we do it? So we've had to be a little bit clever on, on how we do it. So what we do, let's see if I can explain this, is we take the laser beam, the laser pulse, and we break it into two. So now I've got two laser pulses, and I'm going to recombine them. Um, but what I do is um, I recombine them in such a way that one is slightly time-delayed with respect to the other. So they don't overlap in time perfectly anymore. So they're slightly delayed in time. And it turns out, if I'm a little bit clever, on the, so then I focus these time-delayed pulses. Yeah, this is, <laughs> I may have to show you pictures. Inside of a material, it turns out I can generate another optical signal that is proportional to that time delay, only of the overlap of the two pulses. And I record that value. Then I change, and I can do that really slowly. Then I change the overlap again. And I know how much I'm changing the overlap, and that signal goes up, because now they're closer to being on top of one another, and I record that. When I go out and perfectly overlapped, that signal's at its peak, and I record that value. Now, I'm, now I push them past one another. So I just, keep over, I just keep recording this overlap. I'm sweeping one pulse past another, and I've got a special tool that allows me just to measure that overlap that I can do with really slow electronics, and that's, that's how we can do it. And that's, it's non-trivial, but we, yeah, we had to come up with literally a camera that, that could measure it. And so, and again, this, this later slide is a real picture of what a femtosecond pulse looks like. So this is what it looks like in time. So you can actually see it's got little bumps in time. So this is a imperfect femtosecond pulse. Uh, and so this is, Intensity versus time, and this is actually intensity versus wavelength. We have, we have we know this, and what you can see it's the colors. Uh, it's got different colors in it, but they're and they're not weighted equally. Uh, but yeah, that's a science in and of itself. How do you measure femtosecond pulses and characters? But we have to do it, and we do it rigorously. 
That's a hard one. <laughs> and this one, actually, what's great about just a sidebar story about Golden, uh, this is a new laser that we're developing, and it's being uh, built in conjunction with a, a company up in Boulder. But as a result of meeting in coffee shops like this, I met the business over over there of Moog, and he is actually supporting our next generation of lasers. So it's just a, 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 a conversation in a coffee shop over lasers started like this, and it actually generated local support for the work that we're doing inside of our lab. So it's really neat. Uh, so great things happen in coffee shops. It's much easier than writing for a proposal these days. <laughs> Uh, so the the question is, looking at this picture, you can see some of the machinery in the lab. What's this, right? That is the grading that we use to break the light into the different colors. It's it's actually it's actually glass, and it's got uh, very fine grooves written onto it that break the light up into the different colors. Uh, that's the, the schematically this guy. And so you can see what it does to white light. You can see the rainbow there. And it does the same thing to the laser light. The acronym is Light Ampli Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation. Uh, yeah, so, man, that's a mouthful. Uh, it makes sense to me. <laughs> so, uh, and it was uh, invented early 60s. And one of the most profound effects, usually when, when I kind of give these talks, I don't have it with me tonight, is... Uh, so the laser was invented, and then almost instantaneously after the optical laser was invented, this movie came along called Goldfinger, and it's stunning. I mean, if you look at the dates when the first laser was invented, early 60s, to when that movie came out, it's like months. <laughs> I'm, I'm exa I don't remember the exact date. And they show, you know, Sean Connery's getting cut in half. So Hollywood helped, you know, pre predict what was going to go on with this, but I'm just constantly stunned, so... Uh, yeah, if you look, you know, early 60s, and that movie was maybe, what, 61 or 62, but Hollywood grasped onto this almost instantly about the capability. And now we're at least doing eye surgeries. Where <laughs> Thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating.